0: I want to invite you to stand together one final time, to share with me, and to say in one loud voice, as one familia, the guiding verse of our series together, Family Made. And let me encourage you to do it from your heart, and perhaps even from your own memory. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, The new is here. Amen. 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 We are staking our lives on that declaration. And so, Jesus, we invite your presence with us today. Lord, lead us. Our hands are open to you. Lead us into a place of renewal and restoration in your name. Amen and amen. Go ahead and be seated. Today marks the final message in our series together family made. And I want to welcome all of our elementary school kids in the house. We are so thankful for you. We love you all so much, and we are so glad that you were here with us today. And I want to begin with a question just for our elementary school kids. This should be totally easy. What is the name of this punctuation mark? An exclamation point. Thank you to one of our college kids in the house. I'm so glad that our education is helping us all rise. Thank you. Way to go. This is an exclamation point, And I would love to hear from a kid. What does an exclamation point mean in a sentence? Just blurt it out. It means what? It means excitement? That's right. It, it means what else? An emphasis, that's exactly, it means all that. It means excitement, it means an emphasis, it also means a declaration. When you see an exclamation point at the end of a sentence, sometimes, depending on the context, it can mean a declaration. And my encouragement to our elementary school kids here, as well as every single one of us in this room, would be to live our lives like this punctuation mark at the end of this verse. May our lives be an exclamation point to Jesus and his renewing work in each and every single one of us. When people see you, that they would see your life as excitement, as an emphasis, as a declaration to his good work in you. Amen? May all our lives be the exclamation point at the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. In each and every single one of our families, we all need each other's commitment to the sixth and final keystone of what God modeled to us in the garden, and that is participation. We need each other's participation. The onus of responsibility to these keystones doesn't just fall to a single family member or to a particular family role, but to us all. Every single member of the family, across every role in the family, has a responsibility to show up with their presence with your eyes, your heart, your hands, to give your perseverance by not giving up on each other, to prepare one another for the challenges of this life, to protect one another, to pray with anticipation for God to do a great and mighty work in each other's lives, and to participate in building a family together for the glory of God in our world. These are our six keystones. We find them in Genesis chapters one and two. And today, I wanna invite you to give your full commitment, not only to these six keystones, but to participate in each and every single one together. God modeled participation in the garden by choosing to invite Adam and Eve, first man, first woman, and every single man and woman since, to actively tend to creation beside God. He's empowered us to lead with him. Our God is active. He's not passive, he's not aloof in some galaxy far, far away. He is right here in our midst. Jesus said, "Where two or more gather in my name, I am right there with you." Right there. And he's inviting us all into an active relationship with him because ultimately, true love is an invitation to participation. True love doesn't coerce. True love doesn't force true love invites, how would you describe your family's participation with one another? Are your family members participating with their presence, perseverance, preparation, protection, and prayer? Which side of these questions would your family land on? Is participation encouraged in your family, or is it forced? Is it invited, or is it manipulated? Is it freely given or is it bargained for? Giving your honest assessment to these questions will reveal opportunities for growth. So may I invite us not to let these questions pass from the screen too quickly. Instead, talk about these questions at home. Talk about them over dinner tonight. Seek wise counsel from mentors and other good friends in the faith. Let's all give our prayerful consideration to these questions and seek greater participation together within our families and together in the village. As we all endeavor to build our families upon these six keystones, I wanna close this series with a caution against what I call six cultural sledgehammers that present a clear risk to the way that God desires for us to build our families. Listen, I'm not blasting our culture. In fact, some aspects of it bring great value and meaning to our lives. Yet other features of our culture, whether we realize it or not, are seeking to crush us. And we need to make ourselves aware to these sledgehammers so that we know how to dodge their swings and guide our families to remain faithful and true. And this is, no matter what your family looks like, regardless of your marital status, regardless of your family composition, what your family looks like, for even if you're just a family of one right now, we all need to give our attention to these keystones and to the threats against them. At the close of his letter, Paul advises the church in Corinth, be on guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong. We don't need to fear anything that comes our ways. We don't need to fear any sledgehammer that our culture wants to swing against our families. Instead, what we need to do is remain strong in the faith with courage, with strength. As I observe our culture in Miami and across the United States, here's what I see. This might differ in other places around the world, or you might see something differently from your point of view, and that's okay. I want to simply offer to you my observations, and I want to invite you to engage in conversation with your family and apply your own observation to these points. And the first one is this, individualism is the sledgehammer against presence. Individualism simply defined means this, the desire to make oneself. Our culture celebrates this value more than any other. And in some ways, too, our faith also celebrates individualism. We value the freedom for every individual to make their own conscious decision to believe in Jesus and thank God for that. We also believe that God created every single one of us in this room and across the world with his own image. Each person is a unique one of one, and we celebrate that. Yet taken to the extreme, individualism can lead us to become so self-reliant that we stop contributing or receiving from our families, from our communities, from the village, and instead become like our own little islands. Second, doubt is the sledgehammer against perseverance. In the right kind of environment, doubt can raise good questions that lead to new learnings. The shadow side of doubt, however, can result in us ending the pursuit of faith, the pursuit of a relationship, the pursuit of knowledge too soon. Has anyone here ever run a road race longer than a 10K? Maybe like a marathon or a half marathon? Anybody? All right, a few of you. I've done a few uh, half marathons and and a marathon myself, and I got to admit, full confession, (laughs) in each and every single one of those races, I doubted my resolve to finish. I think everybody does in those races. Yet when doubts arise, perseverance helps us push through our questions, push through our pains, and face our fears to discover more. Resist empowering your doubts to permit you to end your race before you get to the finish line. Third, neglect is the sledgehammer against preparation. Neglect is the willful decision to leave something unfinished. I love this quote from author and Christian thought leader John Acuff. He said, starting is fun, but the future belongs to the finishers, including the future of your family. Our culture values a good do-over, and sometimes we all need a good do-over in this life. But preparation requires a long-view commitment Eugene Peterson, author of the Message Translation of the Bible, wrote one of my favorite quotes, and I quote this all the time to our staff team. Discipleship is a long obedience in the same direction. This quote offers us perspective not only for discipleship, but I would also include our marriages, our parenting, our career building, our health and wellness, our schooling. This applies to every arena of life don't neglect the future of your good gifts because the preparation right now feels hard. I believe there's a positive correlation between the distance we travel in our own leadership and the capacity to do hard things. Let's invite God's spirit to grow our capacity to do hard things. Let's grow, let's invite God's spirit to grow our capacity to see the long view, and not just what's right in front of us. Fourth, exposure is the sledgehammer against preparation. Here in this room, I see some handsome bald heads in this room, and, and I gotta admit, whenever this head goes out into the Miami sun for more than just a few minutes without any sunscreen, man, I get burnt. And I believe the same is also true about long-term exposure to our culture. Long-term exposure to violence, sex and nudity, language, and consumerism all increase the risk of causing a culture burn on our souls that can linger for weeks and months and even years. Again, I'm not blasting our culture. We need our culture in the same way that we need our son. But how often do we go out into the sun long term without applying some kind of sunscreen? We need to live with wisdom about what we welcome into our lives and into our families and what we need to keep away from us. Hence why Paul wrote, don't copy the behaviors and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn To know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. And why Paul also wrote, fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Is what you're watching, is what you're listening to, is what you're talking about, would it fit this litmus test that Paul gave us in Philippians chapter 4 verse 8? And why Paul also wrote, run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Healthy boundaries protect our bodies, they protect our minds, our hearts, our souls. (laughs) To my young friends in here, may I simply tell you that the good, healthy boundaries that your parents are placing around you is a way for your parents to simply say to you, you're worth it, you're worth my protection. We need to learn how to see healthy boundaries as an expression of "I love you." We need to, as adults, see healthy boundaries as a way of shielding our souls. Man, we'll go out into the sun for an hour and lather up, but do we protect anything that we put in front of our eyes? Do we protect anything that we hear that? that we're listening to from going into our minds? One proverb says, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. How can we not think that the things we're ingesting with our eyes aren't shaping us? Fifth, distraction is the sledgehammer against prayer. Perhaps the greatest gift that God gave to us is the daily grace of accessing our relationship to God in prayer. Yet the scope of our culture presents a whole buffet of distractions, right? (laughs) I mean, Jesus modeled prayer as our lifeline. He frequently went away on his own to connect with the Father in prayer. Each one of the four Gospels record Jesus on his own recharging, reconnecting with the Father in prayer. When was the last time that you connected with your Heavenly Father in prayer, even for just a few moments? Aside from praying at church on a Sunday morning, some of us might go weeks or even months without setting aside even just a few minutes of connecting with our Father in prayer. Let me ask you this question. If you knew that there was an entire oil reserve under your house and you owned the exclusive rights to the wealth of that oil reserve, what would you do? You would tap into that well so fast, would you not? Of course you would. We all would. And what if I told you that you have the infinite power of God's Spirit alive in you, ready to give you His wisdom, His joy, His love, His direction. And the way that we tap into that is through prayer. You have a reserve inside of you that is worth more than all the oil reserves in this world. You have more, you have the the living spirit of God in you that is worth more than anything that this world could buy. And the way that we tap into it is through prayer. Set your priorities. First light, first thought, seek first the kingdom of God every morning. And sixth and final sledgehammer, apathy as I see it, is the sledgehammer against participation. Of all the sledgehammers that swing against our family keystones, this one, quite frankly, might be the most dangerous. Apathy means indifference. It's the feeling that says, I don't care. <laughs> it's, the f- it's that feeling of looking into a- another person's eyes and getting that sense back that they just don't care about what's happening in this moment. We all need the love and fellowship of one another. If one person stops rowing on the boat, then what happens? The boat starts to drift. It becomes a strain for everyone. We all need to show up. And if we sense that apathy beginning to build into our family systems or at our workplaces or among our friends, that's the moment where we need to lean in. Apathy presents itself as, stay away from me. I just, I don't care. I don't I don't want to be a part of it. I, I, I don't want this. I don't want that. But apathy almost always points to a larger, more significant issue hiding underneath the surface. And so we need to lean in when we notice it. We need to push through whatever is presenting our, our way and say, no, 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 I see you. And I don't know about you, but my heart wants to be needed and known. And I want to connect with yours. So let's push through this together. All these sledgehammers raise the question, how do we overcome these sledgehammers? Because we all feel them, right? We all feel them, and at times we all find ourselves overwhelmed by them. So how do we overcome this? Here I'm reminded of the hours just before Jesus went to the cross. He and his disciples faced the overwhelming weight of cultural sledgehammers about to bear down on them. In fact, Jesus sweated blood because of the duress that he faced. Yet he didn't back down. Jesus didn't back down. Rather, he said to his disciples, I've told you all this. I've taught you everything you need to know. You have seen me, you've seen me lead, you've seen me perform miracles, you've seen me heal, you've seen me teach, and I've told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart, Jesus says, because I've overcome the world. Jesus spoke these words from experience. He lived our trials and felt our sorrows. He knows the reality of our pain. He knows the reality of our loss. Some of you right now are going through unspeakable loss. Some of you right now are working through the ramifications of betrayal. And Jesus knows that. He sees you. He sees you. In fact, the author of Hebrews wrote, this high priest of ours understands our weaknesses for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. Jesus gets us. He knows our challenges, which means he also knows hell help us overcome them. For the same overcoming spirit that lived in Jesus now lives in each and every single one of us who believe. Therefore, we have nothing to fear. When the sledgehammers swing, we have nothing to fear. When the challenges bear down on us, we have nothing to fear. Our overcomer promises to provide us with the daily mercy the daily grace that we need to build our families and our lives upon each and every single one of these six keystones. Regardless of your marital status, regardless of what your family looks like, even if right now you are a family of one, the overcomer who lives in you gives us the strength we need to build our lives upon these six keystones. And to that end, I want to invite us all to cultivate A family mission, vision, and values to guide each and every single one of us, whether whether our lives first, those in our families, into a closer relationship with Jesus and into a closer relationship with one another. I would imagine that many of you know this idea of vision, mission, values in your own organization or corporation. But have you ever thought about them when it comes to your family? Vision is simply a clear direction of our desired future. Where's your family going? Do you have a destination? Do you have a vision of how you want your family to grow and develop and mature in this world? Mission is what we do together. These are our daily actions, our rhythms, our practices together. And values define how we live. We typically see this across organizations at Christ Journey. We have our own vision, mission, values, which you'll see later on uh, in this message. But I want to offer you a template to craft your vision, mission, and values based on the single most important chapter on how we live together in faith. This is Ephesians chapter 4. This is one of the great chapters that when you read it, it gives wise instruction, wise ethics for how we can live together in relationship with others, those within the faith, including those also not part of our faith, it just it's good wisdom for life. The first three verses of Ephesians chapter four give us a way of crafting a clear vision of our future, saying this: lead a life worthy of your calling. For you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle, be patient with one another, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourself together with peace. What is our vision? Our vision is to lead our lives in a way that matches the value of our callings. Does your life right now match the value of your great calling? Our calling is a gracious gift from God that requires our intentional stewardship. There's so much more that we could talk about regarding calling, which I'm not gonna get into right now. But we need to ask ourselves the question, does my life match the value, the worth of this great calling, this great gift that God gave to me? Does my life match that? Perhaps some of you here, and maybe even some of our young people in particular, perhaps some of you have read the Odyssey, Homer's Odyssey. It's a great poem, it's, it's, it looks like a book, but it's essentially, it's one long poem about the lead character, Odysseus, about his way home after war. And along the way home, he encounters all different kinds of trials and creatures and, and challenges. And among the most challenging creature that he faces is something called a siren. Maybe you've heard of this. Sirens were, were especially dangerous because on the surface, they didn't, they didn't present themselves as dangerous. In fact, they looked like these beautiful mermaid-like creatures who would sing these beautiful enchanting songs. But these songs would, would lure the, the, the sailors to bring their ships close to them, and their ships would inevitably crash on the rocks, and they would all perish. And then the sirens would plunder those things that are most important to them. Our calling is, is among our most important assets that we have in this life it's an asset of great worth. And Odysseus conquered the sirens by doing something quite remarkable. He told his sailors, he said, listen, the only way we can get through this is if you bind me to the mast of the ship. And then you cover your ears with beeswax. And as we do that, we'll be able to stay focused. We'll be able to navigate through the songs of these sirens and stay focused on our future. And so that's exactly what the shipmates said. They They bound Odysseus to the mast of the ship. They covered their ears with beeswax, and they were able to navigate through this treacherous path. In verse 3 of Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says, Bind yourselves with peace. During the time that Paul wrote this letter to the church in Ephesus, this poem would would have been among the most honored and celebrated pieces of literature in Greek culture. A lot of scholars believe that Paul chose... This specific word for bind in the Greek that Homer used in his poem to conjure up this same image. But instead of binding ourselves with rope, Paul says we bind ourselves with peace. And we bind ourselves together. Because the way that we navigate all the, the treacherous paths of our culture is by staying lashed to Jesus together with his peace to help us navigate our way through. Apart from that, we're shipwrecked on the rocks. We need each other. We, we need each, the peace of Christ to help us stay bound together. This is our vision, and our mission is what we do. Later in the same chapter, Paul wrote, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, Attaining to the full measure of the fullness of Christ. What is our mission? What are we doing? We are growing in knowledge together. A disciple means one who learns. That's the meaning of the word disciple, one who learns. We're growing in knowledge. We are maturing into responsible men and women of character. And as we attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ We receive Christ's overcoming spirit in us. Though we can't overcome sin entirely in this world, (laughs) we can't do that. We can certainly sin less and love more, right? We can do that. This is what we do. This is our mission together. And we are inviting as many people as possible To experience this with us. And then last, Paul closes the chapter with a set of values that define how we live together in relationship. Values answer the question what do we desire in this life? What do we desire? And based on verses 25 through 32, here's what we desire telling the truth. We tell the truth together, we don't sin in our anger, we do good work, we give to those in need. We use wholesome language. We encourage one another. We show kindness and compassion to one another, and we forgive one another just as in Christ we've been forgiven. This is our template, Ephesians chapter 4, for our family's vision, mission, and values. Recently, I was visiting a family in our church, a family named the Parkers, and I walked in and in their dining room table, right next there, there were four posters on their wall. And I asked Ryan, I said, whoa, tell me about these posters hanging up on your wall. These posters read family values. Another said family patterns and routines. One said family Bible verses. And the other said family time commitments. And he said, yeah, man. He said, you know, we, we, look at, we took some time. We really crafted this because we needed something to guide our way. We found ourselves just totally being succumbed by all the different events and pressures and, and just everything coming our way. We needed something to anchor us. And so now whenever we make a decision, we look at these four posters, and we let, these, we let our prayerful thought that we put into building these guide our way. It was amazing. It was amazing. Ryan's work inspired us to create this for you. And so on the message notes in your app or at ChristJourney.org slash family resources, you will find not only these three sheets here, but you will also find a list of questions that will help you build your family vision, your family mission, and your family values. And I want to encourage us all to do that this week. This week, just set aside uh, 20 minutes to begin the conversation. It might be, it might grow into a conversation that becomes too big to do in one sitting, but you can start it, and you can begin building your lives around this. And then when the challenges come, or when the demands come, come flooding our way, we will know how to navigate these challenges, because we will know, no, this is our vision. This is where we're going. This is our mission. This is what we do. These are our values. This is how we behave. This is how we act toward one another. I want to close with this, this illustration. When I saw this, I, I thought about you, and I thought about my family, and I want to close our series with this. On June 1st, 1813. And those of you in the Navy, you probably already know the story, or at least who are familiar with the Navy. On June 1st, 1813, the American warship, the Chesapeake, went up against a battle, a life and death battle against the British warship, the Shannon. And the captain of the Chesapeake, a man by the name of Captain James Lawrence, commanded the Chesapeake through this battle. And at one point in this battle, this life or death battle, sailors from the Shannon boarded the US ship, the Chesapeake. And they ended up shooting, and mortally wounding Captain Lawrence. And so his sailors took him to his quarters, they laid him down in his bed, and they said, Captain, what do we do? We're being overrun. I mean, give us an order. What, What do we do? And in his dying words, he said, don't give up the ship. Don't give up the ship. And the second in command, he, he took his sailors. He took his officers. They rallied. They brought the other sailors from the Chesapeake. And they ended up overcoming and winning the battle against the Shannon. And soon after, they went to port. And the second in command made this flag that maybe you've seen before. A flag that says, don't give up the ship. It, and it looked almost exactly like this even without the apostrophe and everything. (laughs) And when I saw this, I thought to myself, I want to borrow Captain Lawrence's phrase, and I want to bring it to us today. Don't give up the ship. Don't give up your family. Don't give up on each other. Don't give up the ship of your home. Don't give up your family, adult kids in here. Some of you might be well into your midlife or beyond and your parents are still living and the dawn is setting on reconciliation. Don't give up. Don't give up your family. Don't give up on each other. Some of you might be past the point of brokenness. Some of your families might look so different than how you started. Don't give up. Don't give up on those relationships. Don't give up on each other. It, sounds, it might even sound naive to you we're past the point of no return on this. You're not. You're not the past the point. Jesus didn't give up on us when we went the past, past the point of no return on our own sin. Jesus didn't give up on us. So don't give up the ship. Don't give up your discipleship. Don't give up your worship. Don't give up your friendship. Don't give up your stewardship. Don't give up on your family. Maybe the most important thing you need to hear today is to simply say, I'm not giving up. I'm not giving up. Lord Jesus, we need you. We need your strength in us. We need your courage to show up today, show up tomorrow, and show up the rest of our lives. Living according to these keystones, not giving up on each other. Lord, help us help us not give up when the going gets tough. Or sometimes the pressure feels so Hard. It feels so unbearable. But Lord Jesus, with your overcoming spirit alive in us, alive in me and life in you, Lord, you can help us stand firm, be strong, be courageous. Lord, we need you. This isn't easy. If we think it's easy, we're not paying attention. Lord, this is hard. But you've gifted us to do hard things. You've gifted us to stand with you through the trials, to experience the fruits of your spirit alive in us. And so help us not give up on this ship. Help us not give up on our families too soon. Lord, we need you. And we offer our pleas to you. We offer our cries to you. We offer our prayer to you in your name. Now with our heads still bowed, if anyone today wants to begin a relationship with Jesus for the first time, and you want to invite his overcoming spirit into your life, then I want to invite you to pray this prayer with me. Jesus, I want you. I need you. I'm turning from my own way to you. I receive your forgiveness. Give me the strength and courage to show up. Give me the strength and courage to follow you. I want your way in my life. And I'm inviting you to take the lead. If you prayed this prayer with me, and you would like to begin a new relationship with Jesus today, then would you simply lift your hand where I can see you simply want to say a prayer of blessing over you. Amen. Amen in the back. To my left, amen. Amen in the center. Thank you. Thank you. And to my right, amen. Praise God. Praise God for every uplifted hand. We pray that and we believe that the Lord sees you. And today, his overcoming spirit is alive in you. And so, Lord, help us all take our next steps with you as we make this prayer in your name, amen.